Welcome to Around the Outside, the podcast full of Formula One fanatic with me, Chris Moss and Jake Peach. Thank you for stopping by and listening to the podcast. Don't forget, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so we never miss a new episode. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Just search Around the Outside podcast on Facebook and you'll find us on Instagram at Podcast underscore. We'll be wrapping up the race in Turkey and also looking ahead to the next race in Austin at the Circuit of the Americas in our next episode. But whilst we have a gap in the calendar for this week, we're going to be welcoming a very special guest to the podcast. Yeah, we've been liking to do this this season on Around the Outside uh, in between just to you know, hear from people uh, all across the sport in different guises, whether they're in media um, or in engineering in this case for today. The people behind the scenes are never thought about too much, but are key to an F1 team's success and can make all the difference between winning and losing. Have you ever wondered what it's like being an F1 engineer? Well, you're about to find out as we speak to this week's guest, Ryan Greenslade from Ferrari. So this week we welcome a special guest to Around the Outside whilst we have the race gap between uh, Turkey and Austin uh, at the Circuit of the Americas. So we thought it would be great to speak to someone who's been listening to our podcast since sort of the first few episodes and also happens to be an engineer working in F1. So what better thing to do than talk to one of the listeners that is right in the world of uh, what we're talking about in F1. Uh, Ryan Greenslade is a engineer at uh, Maranello in Ferrari in Italy. Um, welcome to the podcast. Hi guys, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for being here. So firstly, how are you? How's uh, how's everything going uh, at the moment with the, with the season and uh, working at Ferrari? Uh, yeah, great. Yeah, very busy at the moment. Um, not so much on this season, but on next season. So uh, it's full steam ahead with uh, designing next year's car, um, which I think is the case for, for all the teams. Mm. Um, yeah, extremely busy. This time of year is normally very busy anyway, but with the new regulations coming in next year, it's uh, all hands to the pump, really. So um, exciting times. Looking forward to uh, a whole new set of regulations. Mm. That's always a challenge for us designers. So um, yeah, busy, busy, busy at the moment. We'll come on to obviously ask about 2022. Um, I'm, I'm sure you won't be able to reveal every little secret you've got up your <laughs> sleeve. Uh, Ferrari, I mean, that would be that'd be silly, of course. Um, but yeah, we'd be love to hear about that later on in this episode. But first of all, uh, Ryan, of course, it's, it's just be really interesting to hear how you got into Formula One uh, as as an engineer and what your specific role is uh, as as an engineer now at Ferrari. Um, so my my role is I well, my official title I'm a senior concept design engineer um so my most of my well, pretty much my whole career in Formula One I've worked exclusively in um, composite design mm -hmm. so any composite part of the car um I'm involved in the design of so anything in carbon which nowadays is is a big majority everything. of the car obviously yeah <laughs> I mean our group likes to likes to say that we basically do everything <laughs> we're the the linchpin of the design office but uh as a, the design offices nowadays are, are really big with a lot of different groups, a lot of different engineers. But um, yeah, I've always worked within the composite design group, um, which is extremely challenging, um, but very, very rewarding. So it involves um, design and, and testing and, and production of 
many components, you know, the, the chassis itself, the main monocoque, um, all the bodywork, front and rear wing, uh, gearbox, crash structures, floor, diffuser, um, a lot of the aerodynamic parts of the car. So, um, yeah, I've been doing that now since, well, I started in 2010, um, was when I officially started, um, but I did do a year out when I was at university, um, 2008, 2009, I managed to somehow managed to get a job at Red Bull. I'm not, I'm still to this day, don't quite know how that happened, but, uh, <laughs> I was very, very fortunate. I took, took the opportunity and, and ran with it really. So I started there as a, as a, um, an intern basically for, for a year mm. in between my third and fourth year of university. Um, and then once I was in, once the foot was in the door, it's a lot easier then to, uh, to run with it really. So, um, I went back to university, did my final year at university, got my master's degree and then, um, managed to get a job at, uh, at the time, 2010, there were three new teams that joined the grid. I don't know if you remember, there was, mm. um, Virgin or Marissa, what became Mauricia, uh, the HRT team. Yep. And also at the time it was, uh, Lotus racing, which then turned into Caterham. Mm. So I managed to get a job at, uh, Lotus. Um, that turned into Caterham. I was there for sort of three and a half years, um, at a very small team at the back of the grid as a, as a junior designer, basically, um, starting right down at the bottom. Um, although the amount of experience I got in those three and a half years was probably worth 10 years in a, in a bigger team because the team was so small mm. that, I mean, at one stage we had four or five designers in the composite design group designing 90% of the car, basically. Um, so that was quite a yeah shock to the system, having obviously seen how things worked at Red Bull, a, a bigger team that was winning races and, mm. and doing quite well at that stage. And I guess um, they had like five times the people that you did at Caterham. Yes, yeah. I mean, when I when I joined Red Bull, um, it was midway through 2008, which was the RB4 car, mm. and it was kind of middle of the grid. They were still seen as a, a bit of a party team. Um, they had Coulthard and Weber driving. Um, we finished the season quite well. And then we started design on the RB5, which was that year, there was a, a quite a big regulation change. Mm. And that was the year of the double diffuser and Braun and that whole saga. Mm -hmm. um, and we designed a very, very good car and almost won the championship, only just lost out to Braun. Um, but that was the first year that Red Bull started to win races. And you could tell the, the team how it shifted from a, a mid grid to a front running team and they started to take things a lot more seriously and they started to ramp up the recruitment and bring more people in and yeah seeing that team just in the space of a year transform into a front running team mm. and seeing how it it worked in a team of that size and then going out to Norfolk two years two well a year and a half two years later and seeing a, a very small team at the very start of the journey was was quite a shock to the system um, with not very many people and, and very limited budget and resources, but uh, it was great for my experience as a as a junior to go in mm. at that level and, and be given so much responsibility so early on. Um, and then I sort of just gone with it from there, really, and moved on to McLaren mm -hmm. after Caterham and did almost four years, I think, at McLaren. Um, I was really happy at McLaren, loved, loved working there, loved the people. Um, the building itself is an amazing place to work in, um, the McLaren Technology Centre. Um, it feels like you're in a spaceship every day. It's an amazing building. And you've got the boulevard with all the old uh, mm. historic cars all the way down, running down the lake. Um, incredible place to work. And you were and, working uh, there You were working there in this 
really tricky time for the team. Is that right? Yes, the Honda years. Mm. <laughs> yes, as uh, your Sarah, your uh, previous guest alluded to. Um, yeah, they were challenging, challenging couple of years, I must say. Um, but it's such a historic team and such a historic name that mm. just being part of it was was incredible, really. Um, and I was really enjoying my time there. And, and to be honest, I had no intentions of uh, of going anywhere else or leaving. And then out of the blue, I got a phone call from from the Scuderia <laughs> to say, you know, would you like to come to Italy and essentially keep doing what you love doing, but, you know, in Italy mm. for the big red machine. So, um, yeah, I came home and spoke to my uh, my wife about it and we decided this was an opportunity that couldn't, could be turned down. So uh, yeah. here we are four, four, almost four years later. We've been here almost four years now, yeah, and uh, it's going it's going brilliantly. Yeah, of course, the most iconic Formula One team comes knocking. Uh, I don't think you can really refuse that. Um, but but for for you before you know university and everything, was you always interested in F one? Did you ever think you'd end up working in Formula One teams, designing the cars that you see on the grid t- today? No, I had no idea this was even possible. If I'm honest, when I was younger, um, everyone says, "Oh, it must be a dream job," and it is, but I never dreamt of it because I didn't even realise these kind of roles existed um, when I was much younger. I've, I've always been an F1 fan. Um, my dad got me into it from a very young age and we would always watch on Saturdays and Sundays and um, we'd go, you know, we went to, I think my first British Grand Prix was 1999. I remember going along and it was the days of Jordan um, when they had the Benson and Hedges and the the, the yellow Hornet livery i remember going down seeing them and schumacher was racing that was during the prime of his career um and just seeing the cars on track that grand prix was the one where he broke his leg wasn't it it was yes yeah we went on the saturday and we saw him the day before he uh broke his leg unfortunately (laughs) um but yeah just seeing seeing the cars for the first time in the flesh was incredible at at that age um so i'd always been a fan and always been interested in it um but never Obviously, you see on TV and you see the guys that are working at the track. But I think back then the TV coverage was not as it is today. And obviously, social media and everything else didn't exist back then. Um, so I didn't really realise that the, the level to which the teams go to in terms of the design and the preparation of the cars. Um, it's, there's a lot more jobs in F1 now than there was back then as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I would ask, always has had different aspirations as a, as a child um for a future career um and then i think as i got nearer and nearer to uh university age i started to realize that it was a possibility to to actually work in f1 um which is why i then decided to to pursue engineering and get into engineering at university knowing that that would be a good kind of a base if you know if i was ever lucky enough to to get to to formula one Mm. i had no idea that that would be my first job you know, straight out of university. So uh, I feel very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in. Mm. Um, I assumed I'd have to work probably for 20, 25 years before I could uh, could get a job in Formula One and then it opened up straight away. So uh, extremely fortunate. So you're saying like you and your dad used to watch Formula One as you were growing up. Was there a team? Was there a driver that you caught your eye when you were growing up? Um, Damon Hill for sure was, you know, being the British driver. I remember watching at my nan's house with my dad uh, in 96 when he won the title. Um, that was fantastic. 
So there was always him, uh, McLaren and, and Williams were the two two teams growing up being British teams. Um, I used to love watching them. Um, and then as I got older, oh, I remember people like Montoya. I used to love Montoya. He was one of my favorite drivers. Um, fun, funny enough, I was I was never a big fan of Ferrari or Schumacher, if I'm <laughs> honest. Um, they were always the biggest rivals to, you know, to Williams or to McLaren. Um, so it's so strange now to be in the position I'm in, but, uh, do you, I think do, as your, do your colleagues know that Ryan? Uh, some of them do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some don't, <laughs> but, uh, I think that's quite universal amongst a lot of the British guys that work there growing up as, as kids Ferrari, you know, most of us would support the, the British teams and obviously Ferrari was always the big rival. Um, but it's such an iconic team that, yeah, I mean, working here now is is such a privilege and such an honour and to look back at their their history and everything that they have done to be the only team that's been in it since since the start of the championship as well so mm. yeah as you said when when they came calling it wasn't something that you could turn down you know mm. um but yeah as a as a kid it was always uh it was always the british teams against against ferrari so it is strange now to be in this position, but uh, it's one that I'm extremely grateful for. So, yeah, and neither of us have been lucky enough to come to Maranello. I'm, of course, it's on our bucket list. I'm sure me and Chris one day. But Definitely. just give us an give us an idea of what it's like to walk into Maranello every day. Give us an idea of the site, the building, and just how vast it is. And obviously, you feel the history, I guess, every day as you're working. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I, I mean, when I first arrived, it was uh, start of 2018. So this was in a time before COVID, um, and the whole factory was was open, and you could kind of go wherever. So in Maranello, they have the the main car factory mm-hmm. for the road car side, which is where it all started. Obviously, that's the the very historic site. And then just over the road, they've got a brand new facility that's sort of five or six years old which houses all of the um, Ferrari Jess, as they call it, Gestione Sportiva, mm-hmm. um, which is the racing side. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got a nice new shiny building, very modern facilities, which is fantastic. Um, but just walking around there every day and seeing the historic old gates on the other side of the road, mm-hmm. um, walking in under the, the Ferrari badge every day doesn't doesn't get old to me anyway. Um, oh. It yeah it gives you the the first couple of weeks gave me chills walking through the through the door every day mm. um and it was the same at all the teams that i've worked at the same at mclaren walking in there every day never gets never gets boring for me um i mean i'm a massive fan anyway and a bit of a bubble hat so <laughs> for me it's like the best of both worlds but uh yeah if there ever comes a day where i you know don't get excited by it anymore then that's day two to give it up and go and do something else but i, I don't think that day is going to come anytime soon yeah i was going to say no, so, happen. yeah the, the the facility at maranello is is fantastic and um the whole of maranello it's 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 a small city let's say i mean it's called a city but it's uh it's it's more like town size in the uk um but the whole of maranello is is centered around ferrari mm. um it's the reason that maranello is on the map let's let's be honest um and the locals have such a passion for Ferrari. It's it's extraordinary, really, that it is like a for the Italians, it's like a second religion, you know. Um, they all worship Ferrari and it means so much to them. They're so passionate about it. Um, I mean, the actual streets around Maranello are literally painted red. 
that's you know that's the kind of gravity that that Ferrari has in that in this area of Italy. Um, yeah, so just just to walk around around town when you go out for for lunch or you go out for a coffee, and you're wearing the badge with the lanyard and you've got Ferrari on, it's um, yeah, it's it's a great feeling, you know. And uh, Ferrari's a you know super well respected team and company you know around Italy. So to be part of it is especially as a as a foreigner mm. is uh, is even extra special. So. What would you say up to date is your greatest achievement in Formula One? You know, you're talking about Ferrari and you started in 2018. I mean, you guys won the 2018 Italian Grand Prix. That's surely got to be up there. That's definitely up there. Yeah, that was um, that was fantastic to see that on TV. We, we planned to actually go and watch that Grand Prix in Maranello. Um, they open up the cinema uh, for every race in Maranello and all the all the locals go in to watch it. There's a cinema. Um, Yes, they have their own sort of cinema in, in the in the centre of Manilo, sort of for the for the city. Um, but they open it up for every race, and uh, wow. you know, fans and stuff can go in and watch it for free. And um, we didn't manage to get to it for that. We planned to, and then something else came up. And we ended up watching it at home with a few friends. Um, and but a few people from work did go, and we saw some videos from inside after they won. And there was smoke grenades, flags, air horns. <laughs> I mean, it was it was amazing to see like the videos were, were crazy um they, they are so passionate it was mad but yeah that that's definitely up there winning the home grand prix and just seeing the buzz around maranello and just generally in the media here after we won um but for me just just seeing i think the best bits are seeing seeing bits that i've designed on tv that still gives me a buzz even now and i've i've done this for quite some time now um the first race win at, at red bull it was obviously super early on in my career, but everyone, I remember watching that. Um, well, I, I, I used to volunteer on race weekends, actually, in the, uh, you know, in the sort of, um, call it like the, uh, back, back in the factory base, they have like a, almost like a virtual pit wall. Mm-hmm. They have like a race support centre. Mm-hmm. Um, Red Bull, one of the first teams actually to sort of really do that. Um and there was there was probably only eight or nine of us. Most of them were were students or or juniors, um, and we'd go in on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and uh, we'd help out with the guys on the pit wall at the track. You know, so we'd be doing competitor analysis and um, yeah, kind of helping assist the team in any way we could. Um, and so that that year, obviously, as I was a student, I was trying to do whatever I could to. Uh, get as many brownie points as possible really um, yeah. and that seemed like a really good thing to do in my, in my spare time um, and I was in I was in the the race support room um, when we won that first race in China so it was like super early in the morning I think we were in at like 3 a.m or something on the Sunday mm. um, it was a wet race from what I can remember and we uh, Sebastian won mm. um, and so we we'd finished about 9 10 a.m on UK time in the morning Sunday morning um, and then we got a phone call from Christian who was at the track congratulating all of us. And mm. um, he said, you know, like go out, celebrate, you know, it's on, it's on me, it's on the company sort of thing. And uh, a couple <laughs> of us went out and straight on champagne at 10 a.m. on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I think by the time the rest of the factory and, and guys from the design office had seen the, the race later on in the afternoon when they replayed it, um, they all came out and joined us in Milton Keynes, I remember, um, middle of the afternoon. And by that stage, we'd 
we'd obviously been celebrating, let's say, for quite Sorted. some time. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I seem to remember getting back home at about probably 1am Monday morning and then obviously going straight back into work. I think I was one of the first people to turn up for work at about 10 in the morning. There was a lot of bleary-eyed uh, people in the design office that Monday. But that was that was a, a memory that would stick with me forever. That was, uh, yeah, for the whole team as well, because there were guys there that had been there since start of Red Bull but then also before that it was Jaguar and then before that it was uh, Stuart Grand Prix mm -hmm. so there'd been people within that facility at Milton Keynes for quite some time that obviously got never got anywhere near a race win so um, that was that was a fantastic memory that I'll, I'll keep forever um, and also just I remember at Caterham just literally getting the car on the grid mm. for the first Grand Prix in Australia that that first season just making it to the grid and actually the car rolling out of the garage under its own power was quite a, I think a lot of the other teams at the time, they were a bit like, I don't understand why these new teams are getting so excited, but just getting the car to, to Australia was such an achievement for us mm. as a small team starting out with absolutely nothing. I don't was, think HRT uh, even made it to the to the Australian Grand Prix in 2010. I seem to remember, yeah, they they didn't do any of the pre-season testing. I think they, they arrived and then, yeah, the car wasn't ready to go. No. Um, maybe it was yeah, second race or third race that they actually yeah. finally made it there. I mean, you know, it, I think working at a bigger team, sometimes you can lose sight sometimes of the of the struggles that the smaller teams have. Mm. But having seen both sides of it, I've got a much bigger appreciation of the struggles that those smaller teams have. And, and it's quite rare when those three new teams joined all at the same time. It's been a while since we've had a truly new new F1 team um, you know it's great when teams like Haas and stuff have been able to join but they've been able to sort of hit the ground running let's say with um, parts being given to them or they've been able to buy buy major components from other teams and I think that's the model that nowadays is is a model that works um, but starting from scratch is uh, even now is almost impossible mm. um, with the budget that's required and everything else so and just the, the knowledge and the expertise and having the facilities in place as well. Um, I remember before that first preseason test with uh, well, when it was Team Lotus or Lotus Racing, um, I think the night before they were, it was a couple of days before the first test and we were due to fly all the stuff out to Barcelona. Mm. Um, we were, there was a group of us working super late in the design office sort of, I'm talking like two o'clock in the morning, you know, to get, final bits done um and i got a call from the guys there was a few guys down in the trim shop downstairs where they were doing all the final bonding and preparation of components and then they were being flown out last minute i think even on a private plane it was that last minute <laughs> and uh i got a call and go we've got your diffuser down here that you know that was one of the many components that i designed for that launch car mm. and uh, they were like we haven't got we've got so many bits to do for, you know for the next six hours can you come down and give us a hand so not only did I design the parts, design all the molds and the tooling to make the parts, I then also found myself at half two in the morning, <laughs> bonding the parts together, <laughs> trimming them and bonding them. Wow. Um, yeah, it was it was that was the kind of team spirit that they had at the time. It was just all hands to the pump at all times, working crazy hours um, to get things done. Um, but that was the one thing that the team had. We never we never won any points, and we were always at the back of the grid and. We barely got on TV most races, but <laughs> the team spirit was was fantastic. 
Mm. Everyone was in it together and and we were just determined to make it to onto the grid basically and, and try and compete in every Grand Prix that we could. Mm. Um, and all these people behind the scenes, you know, including yourself, are so valuable to F1 teams. So we always hear like Lewis Hamilton saying, thanks to everyone back at the factory. How closely do drivers work with you, like realistically, uh, without naming anyone, I guess, if they don't? Uh, and, and, <laughs> uh, and secondly, kind of what, what, which driver would you say has given the most feedback um, to back has helped you the most back of the factory with the team uh, in your career and your time across those teams? Um, every driver is different. I would say from my experience and the drivers that I've worked with um, or worked for, um, they're all very different and they all have different things that they, they contribute towards um, a lot, a lot of the parts that I've designed, let's say not necessarily involved with the driver. So the drivers obviously won't get involved with a lot of the aerodynamics and, and things like that, because usually it's something that they don't fully understand. Mm. But the one thing they do understand is the, is the feel of the car and the handling and, and how to best get, you know, 100% performance from themselves. So they get involved a lot with the, the cockpit and the, obviously their environment, the steering wheel, the pedals, the setup the seat and things like that. So we have guys that will design all of those components. So they, they have regular contact with the drivers, you know, with those components. Mm. Um, and some drivers spend a lot of time in the factory and they do lots of, I mean, nowadays the simulator is constantly running. The drivers are in and out for simulator sessions. So there's a whole other team of people involved in the simulator and race engineering, um, which is, something that I've I've never really been involved with, but there's so many jobs involved in that side of, of running the team as well. Um, and obviously those are the guys that have the most contact hours, let's say with the drivers, um, going over run plans, going over um, what the plan is for the next simulator session or what the plan is for the next Grand Prix weekend, um, going over, pouring over hours and hours of data from previous races and dynos and simulator sessions to to you know find that extra tenth of a second if it's possible mm. um so the drivers that's where they get heavily involved is, is looking over the data looking over simulator sessions and things like that um but they do certainly come in um to the design office as well to so you know and see what's going on and see you know upgrades and new parts coming through and things like that um for sure one driver that stands out to me was Weber, Mark Weber at, at uh, Red Bull. Um, really, really nice guy. Really always gave great feedback. Um, got really involved in the factory as well, making sure that he, you know, essentially did the rounds and spoke to as many people as possible. Mm. Um, literally my, my second day on the job at Red Bull as a student, um, they, uh, the, the chief designer said, oh, we're doing a shakedown at Silverstone. So this was back in the days when sort of in-season testing was allowed. So teams would test every other weekend that there wasn't a Grand Prix on, basically. And they were doing a shakedown at Silverstone on my second day on the job. So me and a couple of the other students got sent down to just kind of basically mingle around, meet the race team, see the car up close for the first time, just kind of soak it all in. We didn't really have a specific role on the day, just, just go down and you know, taking as much as you can, mm. you know, ask questions, have, have a poke around the car, see what you can find and just, you know, really take it all in. 
and uh, Weber was was doing the shakedown on the day, um, and he made a point of coming over and speaking to us us guys. You know, um, he knew who we were and why we were there. Um, and then during the day, they had a sort of a lunch break where the, the race team sort of had a lunch, but essentially they were working on setting up the car for the afternoon runs. And obviously Weber didn't have anything to do. So he turned around and said, right, who, who wants to come for lunch? And obviously all the guys like, now we're busy, Mark, you know, we've got, we got set up to do and whatever for the afternoon. So he just turned around to me and the, the other two guys that were there, the, two, the other two students and said, well, you guys aren't doing much. So do you want to come with me for lunch? Took us out, took us to his, uh, back to his house that was nearby. Wow. Um, his wife made us lunch. We sat in his garden. I was just like, mind blown. You know, yeah. this is like second day on the job and I'm sat down having lunch <laughs> with Mark Weber and he was chatting away and telling us all these old stories and yeah, really, really nice guy. Um, yeah. So that was, that was a <laughs> quite eye opening second day on the job. Yeah. Um, cool. But yeah, he was always very, very good with feedback. Um, I remember at Cater, uh, Kovalainen, yeah, mm. Hakey, for mm. a couple of years, he was just what a new team on the grid needed. Someone with a lot of experience. He'd worked at big teams. Mm. He'd been at McLaren previously, so he'd seen how that all worked. And I know the race engineers really appreciated everything that he was able to give back in all the feedback from the track and from testing and stuff. Um, yeah, so, and uh, Charles and Seb, when I first got to Ferrari, well, when I first got to Ferrari, we had uh, Sebastian and Kimmy, mm. um, and you'd see them around quite often coming into the factory. Uh, Charles comes in a lot, does a lot of, obviously they're always doing simulator, as I say, but always makes a point of coming around the factory and chatting to the guys and seeing what the latest developments are and what we're working on. So You mentioned Kimmy yeah. and chatting. Did that? Those two not not so much not so much from Kimmy, no. Obviously, uh, well known for his silence, but uh, yeah, he, I used to see him come in and, and do the simulators and stuff, and uh, he'd always say hello. He was yeah, I think in person would talk more than maybe he does on camera. Yeah, sure, but didn't, uh, didn't just stand in the room and eat an ice cream in the corner or something. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I think he's. I think on a personal level, he's. I don't. You know, I I only met him once or twice. I haven't spoken to him for long, but the impression I got from people that did work with him more often was that quite different person, you know, much more yeah, yeah. chatty and, and, and very, very funny, you know, mm. really good sense of humor. So, um, yeah. And, uh, Jensen Button, I remember Jensen at McLaren mm. worked there for a few years when he was there. Um, and he always went down really, really well with, with the staff, very likable guy. Mm. Um, he used to always come have breakfast with us as well. That was always a bit of a McLaren institution was breakfast at 10 o'clock every day. Mm. We'd always go and he'd, um, he was very friendly with a few of the, the guys that I knew at, at McLaren. So he'd always come and join us at breakfast, which my wife was always extremely jealous of when I got home in the evening <laughs> and said, oh yeah, I just had breakfast with Jensen today. Because she was, she's a massive fan of Jensen. Mm. So uh, yeah, I always used to rub it in whenever I got home. <laughs> So talking about drivers who you've spoken to, you've met, you've worked with, if Stefano Domenicali came to you tomorrow, said, we've got a brand new team coming for 2022. You're only allowed to pick drivers who you have worked with in the teams that you've been working with. What two drivers are going to be your two drivers for your team? Good question. What a question. <laughs> oh, I think for sure I'd have to put Charles Leclerc in for just 
outright pace, uh, his race craft as well. I think I think he's for me he's one of the well I think he's the best defensive driver on the grid at the moment. Whenever he's got someone behind him who may be in a faster car, he's able to keep people behind him, and that's he you know pushes the car to the limit and gets hundred percent out of it every every race weekend. And as a as a team member, that's that's all you can ask for. That's what you want. You won't always have the fastest car on the grid, um, but you you know we all put a lot of effort and a lot of time into into the work that we do because we're all extremely passionate. Um, and all that you want from your driver is to is to push the, the car, that car to the limit of what it's capable of. Mm. And I always get the impression that with Charles, that that's that's what he does. So I would probably put him in. And then second, I don't know, I've worked with so many amazing drivers. Um, either, either Sebastian or, or Mark Webber, I would say. Oh, that's controversial. The two of them. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were very good friends off the track. Um, yeah. that, that year, RB, the RB5, which was 2009, yeah. when we almost won the title. Um, I remember the Christmas party end of that year. And uh, they were they were they were they were good mates off the track. There was you know there was obviously the rivalry on track, and hmm. they're both going for the title for a few years. But uh, they're both really really sound guys off the track, and yeah, that I remember that I remember that Christmas party forever because it was such a good a good evening. But um, both drivers t- turned up, and and you know were were t- chatting to everyone. All of the obviously we. All the staff members were able to bring partners and mm. and wives and girlfriends and stuff, um, and yeah, it was just one of those nights that was uh, will definitely live long in my memory. Um, but both of those guys were really personal, you know, really really friendly guys, and both amazing drivers as well. So if you had to, it was, it'd be a toss up between. Yeah, <laughs> I had to pick one. I think if I was going for out and out. Um, pace i guess i'd go with sebastian he's a four-time world champion yeah um and you know that doesn't come easy so um yeah i guess i guess i'd go with sebastian and charles so two great drivers you've chosen for you know your team um sticking with 2022 uh you've already mentioned you know you guys are heavily in development for next year um how do you feel with the new regulations Ferrari going to be do you feel that you're going to be able to push a lot more do you feel you're going to be able to go for the wins uh yeah i certainly hope so um i mean it's a huge unknown for every team really mm. um it's in my time in f1 this is the the biggest rule change for sure um it's essentially starting from a blank sheet of paper really they've completely rewritten the rule book um and everything is up for grabs really other than the engines which will be sort of a, a sort of frozen now um, but everything else other than than engine is is completely changed so it's a huge unknown for everyone so when we hit the track at the first test we'll start to obviously get an idea um of, of who's who's done a really good job with the new regulations um but yeah i mean it all you know looks really positive we're working really really hard so fingers crossed that we've uh you know 
we've done the right, we've worked in the right areas and um, we'll hit the ground running. Um, but it's just a complete unknown, which mm. is exciting for, you know, the fans and for everyone that will be watching next year. Um, a little bit daunting for us because you just, you just don't know. Yeah. Um, it, you're essentially working completely blind. You've got no idea what everyone else is doing and there's no real reference points at all because everything is, is completely new. Um, so yeah, this, this season has been a bit, a bit strange because, uh, the new regulations were supposed to be in for this year. Mm. And then obviously when there was the huge delay with, with COVID and the season was, was delayed and put back, they made the decision to delay the new regulations for another year. And then, um, this year's cars, I wasn't sure what, how this season would go, but so far it's been like some of the races have been ridiculous. It's been very, very exciting. Yeah. But a lot of the cars, they're all sort of carried over, which has never happened in my time in Formula One. I mean, it was something that happened sort of in the 70s and a bit in the 80s where the teams would develop a chassis and then they'd maybe yeah. use it for two two or three seasons. Um, used to have it where the chassis names used to be like chassis such and such. And then slash A, slash season, B. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah which think, hasn't happened in sort of modern, modern times, really, for like the last sort of... 15 20 years really we, we you know the teams and the budgets and stuff we've always done a new a new chassis new car every year um so it was kind of weird really to to carry over large parts of the car um at first i thought oh it'd be you know the pre-season for for this year be fairly easy you know there won't be too much work and we can focus <laughs> on next year's car wasn't necessarily the case. There still seemed to be so much to do and lots of bits to 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 release and new components to design. But um, it has meant that a lot of the teams have obviously spent a lot longer on on next year's car. So I mean, I've I've been working on next year's car for quite some time now. Um, I mean, just because there's last, so much to do. I mean, compared to last season, you guys at Ferrari have probably been one of the best performers this year compared to how you were last year. Because last year was quite disappointing really you, I think you finished seventh in yeah. the instructors whereas I mean you're seven and a half points behind McLaren and bear in mind McLaren they're getting quite a lot of praise for what a season they're having mm. for not really getting that much press but you're only seven and a half points behind them and yet they've won a race like, yes. that's quite yeah. an impressive feat for you guys uh, definitely the improvement from from last year like I said for a car that's you know largely carried over is um there's been great to, to see um and you know it's sort of some reward for all the hard work um yeah and maybe it doesn't get spoken about as much as mclaren i mean it's it's for me it's great to see mclaren back up there as well um having worked there and and spent many good years there um but yeah for, for ferrari it's it's been a, a big improvement um and we hope that we can you know carry it on next year because although people are pleased and we're, we're pleased that we've made the improvements third for Ferrari is, is still not, you know, what Ferrari should be doing. You know, we, we should be competing for, for race wins every race. That's, that's the mantra really is, is that, you know, that's where we, we believe we should be. So it's, it's a weird one because, you know, we're, we're pleased with the improvements, but obviously in the grand scheme of things, we're still behind where we want to be. So um, yeah. But I do have to. I do have to pick you guys up on. I think your, one of your first episodes where you did your predictions for the uh, for the <laughs> oh, season. No. I, I think one of you, one of you, maybe put a sixth or seventh. So I have. We need to have some words. I think <laughs> about those predictions. <laughs> to be fair, I think we were both pretty down there for Ferrari. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, I think we said it in the last episode. Like 
we we haven't really covered Ferrari that much, but I picked it up. I was looking at the tables, like, geez, you're actually so close to to McLaren. Yeah, I know me and Jake talk about McLaren a lot because obviously we've had Sarah on, so we've spoken mm. a lot about McLaren. Obviously, now we've got you on talking a lot more about Ferrari, which is great because, you know, I'm actually wearing my Ferrari shirt right now. Perfect. Look at that. On brand. Uh, also wore the shirt when I was speaking to Sarah as well. And she <laughs> words for me as well. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, it's great to see, you know, me and Jake growing up, when we started watching Formula 1, Ferrari were the team. You know, oh, yeah. Schumacher, yeah. you know, all the way through, you know, up until 2006 when he retired. Then you had Kimi in 2007, even Felipe Massa, you know, yeah. ever so close yeah. in 2008. And then, you know, it's sort of ever since, so like when you came into Formula 1 with uh, the double diffuser era, that's when the sort of ever so slight decline happened, then picked up with Fernando. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, and obviously... For me, last year, I was expecting Ferrari to be there. They were there 2018, you know, 2019, you were there. But I don't think anybody anticipated the decline that Ferrari went down. And I think because, like you say, this year's cars were very much 2.0 of what we had last season, I don't mm. think anybody expected Ferrari to have the pace, the performance that you guys do have this year. And for me... Seeing, you know, I, I was at Silverstone, seeing Charles Leclerc lead the race for majority mm. of it, it was great for me to see. I mean, I was very happy that Lewis ended up overtaking him and winning the race um, <laughs> but for a British driver. But, you know, I, I saw Charles Leclerc before the race driving in, you know, one of the first Ferraris ever driven. And for me to see that and, you know, see Ferrari leading the Grand Prix, for me as an F1 fan, that, you know, that warmed my heart. You know, it was lovely yeah. to see Ferrari do that. And, you know, like you say, because we're British, we, we don't tend to favour Ferrari as much as, you know, the Italians do. But as an F1 fan, you want to see Ferrari up front. You never want to see another back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I remember when um, when I started, yeah, when, when the new regulations came in, the double diffusers, and there was a bit of a rule change. And I think Ferrari and McLaren actually were, before that, were right up the front. And they had one season where they... They really struggled. I think they really struggled with the change of regulations and other teams jumped ahead. And there was the sort of uh, the period where they had, um, was it uh, Lucas Badoa in the car for a few races? Yeah. That, was, yeah. that wasn't great. And then Fisichella took over and they were, they were really struggling at the back. But with teams the size of Ferrari and McLaren and, and Red Bull and Mercedes, if you do have a, an off year where you, you know, you fall back and you, you know, maybe you take the development of the car in the wrong direction, the amount of expertise and the, the facilities that they've got mm. and the, the people, you know, they can pick up very quickly and, and try to, you know, right the wrongs. And last year was, yeah, it was tough. You know, it was um, with everything that happened with um, the engine and then the, the FI making um, clarifications and changes. I think the year before that, obviously, we'd, ha we'd had a very good year and the car itself was um, was fantastic in a straight line. I think our straight line speed was was the best on the grid. Um, and then we knew that if we made some aerodynamic changes and some chassis changes and made the car stronger in um, lower speed, medium speed corners, um, we could really take the fight to Mercedes the next year. And then, obviously, we got to the end of the, the previous season and they made... The engine regulation changes or the, the clarifications let's say mm. and obviously it had a big the biggest effect on on ferrari and what we were doing yeah 
Um, but by that stage, it was kind of too late. The, the philosophy of the next year's car had already been put in place. The architecture of the car had been laid out. Um, everything had been designed and bits had been manufactured. And obviously, when we started the season, we the philosophy of the car was based around a certain type of engine, a certain type of power output and, and power curve. Um, and it's hard then to, to, to completely shift and do a 180 and recover because your whole car architecture and the, the, the chassis and the layout is based on a certain design philosophy. Mm. So all of a sudden we lost power. Um, and so therefore, you know, we had a, say a draggier car, you know, more downfalls. Mm. It was based around a different philosophy that then didn't work with what we could get from the, from the power unit um, and the energy recovery and everything else. So yeah, we were sort of handcuffed straight away, I guess we were sort of, sort of, into a, a difficult position um and you know we made improvements throughout the year but you know short of of redesigning the, the chassis and completely redesign the car which just wasn't possible we were always we always had that handicap and and then obviously when they when covid then hit and we realized that the regulations were going to be delayed by a year and everything was being carried over i think we all feared the worst to start with we we're like well you know we were hoping to make these big changes new regulations start again mm. And then the car was was carried over. We were a little bit, you know, mm. you know, we've we've got this this chassis for another year, and and the problems that we know that we've got with them, and that's difficult for any team when you're in that situation and you've got to carry it over. So I think we did a very very good job with the the limited um, regulation change where they because every team got these tokens, there was this token system, wasn't there, to um, yeah. allow limited development, but it was it was very limited. And you basically, you can only really choose one one item of the car. So mm. uh, either like the front end, like the, the nose structure, the crash structure could could be one that you'd spend the tokens on. Um, but Ferrari decided to do it on the, on the rear of the car and redesign the rear end and the, the gearbox. And obviously that allows you to re redesign the rear suspension. And of course, the the new twenty twenty two regulations are pretty much a revolution of Formula One, like we've never seen, as we've been sort of alluding to a bit earlier. And in previous rule changes, of course, we've had Braun, all for albeit for one season, who are now Mercedes, uh, run away with it in two thousand and nine. Let's say you know at testing they were like one and a half seconds quicker around Catalonia ahead of any team. Yes, and then, yeah, that was. Uh nuts yeah. when we saw when we saw those first times and it was one and a half two seconds and we were just like oh my god where has this come yeah. from and then obviously in the hybrid era we had mercedes and they just sort of got everything ticking and working perfectly and they've obviously dominated uh, ever since and, and made it work but these new regulations of course are trying to level the playing field you know um the whole wind tunnel regulations so the T team doing the best get less wind tunnel time and there's cost caps and everything do you genuinely see things leveling out with these new regulations or do you think there'll still be one team that that gets it right and the regulations can't really control a certain team's dominance possibly ferrari hmm. i think i think it will help to close things up for sure but the cost cap is massive especially for the the big teams so we've really noticed it at ferrari and i know at red bull and at mercedes it will be a, a huge change for them so cost is formula one's always teams have always spent a lot of money i mean the, the budgets are for putting two cars on a grid 20 odd times a year is it is insane really that the, the the budgets that some of the teams work with 
Um, but I mean, sort of next, I think at the moment on for next year, it's uh, it starts at 145 million mm. euros and then it goes down by like five or 10 each year for the next couple of years. I mean, we're talking about, that's about a third of the budget that some of the big teams would probably spend um, each year. So for the for the biggest teams, it's a huge, huge change. Um, for some of the smaller teams, that was kind of the budget they were already spending or even more than they would spend. So um, that may well close, close things up a little bit. Um, when I've been working in, at some of the bigger teams, McLaren, Ferrari, at Red Bull, cost and budget never really came into my line of work, to be honest. Um, you know, we would say, right, okay, we want to say, you know, for the next race or the two or three races time, we've got a front wing upgrade that the aerodynamics department have come up with. So they'd send over a surface and then, you know, my job would be to, to design to those surfaces. And so I'd be, you know, liaising with manufacturing guys, with uh, guys from the structures and the stress department and working through all the, all the design things that need to be done on, on the new components. But in the past, the cost was not, you know, every now and again, you go, okay, this is, this is maybe we could maybe do it a bit cheaper, but it was never one of the first things that you would think of, you know, it was right. How can we get the best performing part, you know, performance wise, weight, stiffness, you know, all the, all the key performance indicators for, for the component and cost was usually a bit of an afterthought, if I'm honest, it wasn't something that ever really came across my desk. Whereas now it's like, one of the first things that we're we're thinking of so it's changed the way that we work um and i think that uh, is the case for all the big teams so that is a big 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 difference for next year and i think that will help to to realign the order a little bit and, and bring those those smaller teams in the back of the grid closer to the front and i guess kind of the key thing we're talking about here for the future of f1 is uh resource and efficiency and it sounds like it's going to come down to the people uh, rather than the money and, mm. and, and utilizing them in the best way. Um, do you still think that someone with a genius idea could unlock the key that no one else has and everyone will be flocking to copy it? Or do you think those days are gone? Uh, no, I think, I think those days are still here. I think that is one of the biggest things for designers and aerodynamicists in F1 is always trying to find let's say a gray area of the rules or a loophole or something. Um, you know, the, the F duct, the, the double diffuser, all these innovations that we've had in, in years gone by have, um, have always been loopholes or gray areas in the regulations and someone smart has, has managed to capitalize on it. And then yeah, inevitably all the other teams go, great idea. It's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot cheaper and a lot quicker to, uh, to copy someone else's good idea than to come up with your own. So, um, <laughs> It's uh, it's something that always happens, but um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if anyone comes up with anything straight away for when we launch next year's cars, or whether it's something that gets introduced midway through the season. Um, teams are always looking for those, you know, those those out the box ideas. Let's say, um, I would be surprised if anyone put it on. You know, if they did think they'd come up with something killer, whether they would, I'd be surprised they put it on the car from the first test those days are gone now that like teams are super secretive now and, and things get hidden and uh, and held back and unleashed at the right time because if you come up with a gene you know if you come up with the next double diffuser 
you would be silly to put it on first test in Barcelona because next year we've got a couple of pre-season tests and there's there would be time for teams to react and try and get it on the car early in the season whereas if you mm. let's say unlo- you know unleash it at the first race you've then got a few few months before other teams can catch up and copy it so mm. you have to be strategic as well now with with when you introduce these you know novel concepts and new ideas and stuff so uh, it's something that the teams think about a lot more nowadays than, than they did in the past let's say because you know the big teams can react quickly and can can get new parts on the car very very quickly nowadays. So, mm. so when sort of um, your deadlines to complete your development for next year's car? Do you is it before the pre season test? Is it you know by the end of this calendar year? Yeah. So we always have the period that we call car build, which is in between both seasons. That's really when you are literally building the car. So parts have been manufactured or are being delivered into the the car build area every day and you're building the car up and and testing in the R&D labs and suppliers outside of the company are are building and testing bits for you. Um, And yeah, that's usually sort of October, November through till, yeah, a few weeks before the first test or a week before the first test. Um, But in terms of the design and for me, obviously I'm, I'm sort of ahead of that procedure I'm, I'm working even earlier than that and then designing and, and releasing parts as well and, and that's been ongoing for quite quite a few months now um it really depends on on the part of the car because um for us in the design office we're kind of uh i guess we're in the middle of the chain you know you have the aerodynamicists are kind of the start of the process so they will be working in the tunnel um working on cfd coming up with thousands of thousands of ideas they sort of get filtered through CFD and wind tunnel and then they kind of give those ideas to us. We're like the middle of the, the chain, the design office, and then beyond us is obviously manufacturing and testing. So um, we'll, we'll be get, getting given stuff from Aero all the time and then, you know, we'll, the company or the, the team will make a decision on which parts they want to, to actually go forward with and then we will be designing and, and releasing components. Um, and depending on the size of the component, the lead time, you know, the, the, the chassis itself, the main monocoque obviously is a, is a huge project. Um, and the first chassis that, that we manufacture can, can take a good couple of months to, to, to laminate by hand. Every single ply is laminated by hand uh, by the guys downstairs. It's quite a, a process. Um, so those kind of components obviously are much earlier in the program. And we have to design and, and decide, make quite big decisions on, on those kind of projects much earlier. Mm. Um, and usually a lot of teams will sort of start to release geometries and, and components for those kind of projects around like the summer. Mm. So there's always a mad rush before the, the two weeks of shutdown in, in August. Yeah. Um, there's always a mad rush just before that to get certain bits released and then just afterwards. Um, and then other other projects that you know, you try and give as much time to the aerodynamicists to develop and because they're finding new stuff every day in CFD and in the tunnel. Yeah. So the longer that you can give to them, the better the, the launch car will be, let's say. Mm. So we're always pushing and pushing against the, the planners to say, no, no, we need more time. We need more time for the, the aero development, which obviously gives us as designers less and less time. Yeah. And the manufacturing gives them less and less time, which is why things like rapid prototyping is so vital to us now just mm. to cut down on, on lead times of parts 
Um, but yeah, Christmas is always busy. Um, my my uh, my wife, we've been yeah, we've been dating pretty much since since I started in F one. Uh, she's a big she's a big F one fan anyway, so she um, she sort of understands the the ins mm. and outs of of the business. Um, but she understands that Christmas is always the busiest time of year. Um, you know, I can get a few days off around Christmas, but in the lead up to and just after Christmas is, you know, Full eight o'clock in the morning till ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, midnight. You know, it's long hours, and that's the the, the most stressful, the, the the craziest time of the year usually. Yeah. Just before Christmas. So, um, but that's for me, that's the most exciting time as well. You know, designing all the new parts, just releasing new parts every day, and you know, it all starts to come together on on CAD. Um, you know, it's uh, it's an exciting time of year. Well, hopefully you're gifting the team performance for the for the season ahead. So very crucial time. Uh, Ryan, it's been absolutely fascinating to get an insight into the design side of, of F1 and, and really kind of delve in behind your career and, and all these different aspects of your job, which we don't hear about on the telly every day because it's, it's all about the drivers or their performances. So it's been great to have you on around the outside. Finally, before before we go, just sort of conclude for us what are your ambitions personally for the rest of the season and um as a fan yourself who can you see taking the championship this year which is extremely close it is yes been fantastic so far um for for me personally and for ferrari i mean if we can if we can pick up third in the championship it's a it's a really close battle um between us and mclaren um Strange one for me, having come from McLaren and, and being at Ferrari now and having a, a real love and passion for both both teams. Mm. At the end of the day, either one coming third is, is great for either team. It's a big improvement for both teams. Um, I guess I, I would, you know, love it to be Ferrari currently. But as a consolation, if, if McLaren do come third, I, I would be, you know, I'd be really pleased with them. I, I've got lots of friends still at McLaren, people that I work with. Mm. Um, so yeah, if, if it's if it's to be them, then it's you know silver lining, I guess. Um, but yeah, third third in the championship would would be be a great step in the right direction for us. Um, and in terms of the title, I'm I'm not a huge Lewis fan, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> no one, neither of neither of us in this household are, are are huge Lewis fans. So I I would I'd like to see Max win it. Mm. I would like to see Max take it. Um, also because yeah you know there's still people i know at, at red bull as well from my time there yeah um so to see them get back on top spot um i think possibly yeah max the drivers i think it looks like maybe mercedes could could get the constructors again mm. which is is a much bigger one for us guys that work in in formula 1 for the, for all the staff mm. the the constructors is the big one for us mm. obviously for the fans it's all about the drivers title um and who wins that Obviously, for the teams, it's it's uh, constructors. So that's always the the big one. Mm. Um, but I think possibly as a, an entire package and as a team, maybe maybe Mercedes are slightly stronger. So possibly I would say them for the constructors, but possibly Max the title. Ryan Greenslade from Ferrari, uh, senior composite design engineer. Thank you so much for your time around the outside, and uh, hopefully you can listen to us for the rest of the season like you have been. We're very grateful. I certainly will do. Thank you for having me. So absolutely amazing to hear from Ryan there. Absolute 
tremendous point of view getting the engineering side something like you say jake we don't get enough off in uh on tv and it was very intuitive to find out you know what's happened in the past about his future and you know what you know looks good for ferrari you know after what was a disappointing season last season yeah incredible to hear you know behind the scenes at ferrari and, and how they're sort of riding that wave now and coming back through uh, to return to where they should be near the top of the grid and seems like they're getting to that point and really excited there, of course, about the new regulations, kind of resets the rule book and, and it has. It's a totally new rule book to kind of approach. But fascinating to also to hear his experience going across different kind of levels of teams as well, Caterham was obviously at the back of the grid, smaller resource, and then working at teams like Red Bull, McLaren with much bigger resource and, and finances and the difference of how much effort or you know workload he had to put in and how much different responsibilities he had to take on. Fascinating stuff that we would never hear about uh, you know, on the TV or, or every day that we watch Formula One every weekend. So uh, incredible to hear that side of it, Chris, that we don't really consider too much. Absolutely. And we'd like to say thank you again to Ryan for joining us. And also thank you for him to listening to our podcast. Um, that's how mm. we found out about Ryan. Um, but we'd also like to wish him and Ferrari all the very best for the remainder part of the 2021 season. And also for good fortunes for the preseason testing coming up next year. Yeah, of course. Uh, we really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Around the Outside. It's been, as I say, fascinating to hear all behind the scenes and we'll be back next week with an, a new episode as we said at the top of this episode we will be looking back on the race in turkey uh, in full and catching up with all the latest news uh, in between the races and looking ahead to the next race in austin at the circuit of the americas but thank you so much for listening to this episode of around the outside it's been me jake peach here and me chris boss and we'll see you next time here on around the outside take care